God's word. You may be seated. Thanks, John. Well, good morning. Hey, if you're used to a center projector here, and especially for those of you that are sitting right here, uh, we had it just kind of uh, poop out during the last service, and so we, uh, it was getting all blurry and fuzzy, and so we just went ahead and turned it off, and we'll have to get that replaced. So uh, just, just enjoy, make use of the side screens as we uh, go through some stuff today. Um, Listen, we're continuing our study in the book of Romans. We uh, hit chapter 13 today, which is an exciting time, and really the home stretch is in front of us. We've got eight or nine weeks left as we've journeyed through this book. And uh, today, the, the, the issue and the topic that the Apostle Paul in his writing addresses in Romans chapter 13 is an issue that impacts nearly every area of our lives. There, there are a ton of of areas of our lives that, that are impacted by what Paul has to say here today. So I, I made a list of some. So this passage that we're going to look at this morning, it affects you if you've ever driven a car, if you've ever bought a car seat, if you've ever taken your kids to a local park, if you've ever filled a prescription for medication, if you've ever flown in a plane, if you've ever sent your kids to school, if you've ever kept your kids at home for school, if you've ever had a job, okay? And we could go on. Anyone that, you go, man, I've never done any of those things. <laughs> no, we've all done a lot of that. We did a, a good bit of that actually on the way here this morning. And, and, and what that is, the reason all those things connect is because what Paul is talking about here in this particular passage has to do with government. What is a Christian's relationship to government? Now, it's interesting because there's a story in the Gospels, and, and it's really clear in, in Mark chapter 12, if you get a chance to read Mark's account of Jesus' life, that there's an interaction uh, where some people who are opposed to Jesus unite to ask him really about his relationship to government. And the reason they did this is because Jesus, as he preached, uh, would often talk about the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Mark begins with him saying, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And then he would tell these stories. He would say, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like, and he would tell all those kind of stories. And there was this great Jewish anticipation that a Messiah would come who would overthrow the Roman occupation of Israel and would institute a new kingdom. And so there was a lot of question by those who are sort of following Jesus from a distance, going, what is this guy's political agenda here? And so one day, a group of Pharisees, those were the religious leaders of the day, uh, they wanted nothing to do with Rome. They wanted to see uh, Rome's occupation overthrown. A group of Pharisees get together with a group of Herodians. And the Herodians were very supportive of the Roman government and of kind of the Roman uh, culture. And those people, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they disagreed about everything except that they both hated Jesus. <laughs> and so they got together and they plotted to ask Jesus a specific question to try to get to see where would, where would he land. And so the question they asked was, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And specifically what they had in mind was a particular head tax uh, that was instituted just for the privilege of being a Roman citizen. So this wasn't like income taxes. This was just everyone had to pay a particular tax. A denarius was the tax. And that tax was just for the privilege of, of being part of the, the Roman Empire. Now that incensed the Jews. They hated this tax because they didn't think it was a privilege to be part of the Roman Empire. They hated the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was an occupying force. And they came in and so they asked Jesus, Jesus, should we pay this tax? And if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't pay it, 
then what he's saying is, I've come to overthrow the government, and I'm going to lead a political revolution. If he says, yes, of course you should pay it, then it's like, oh, well, I guess you're not much of a Messiah anyway. So they really kind of leave him in this place. So Jesus does something really interesting. He says, anybody have a denarius on him? He didn't have one. He was poor. Anybody have one? Okay, let me see it. And he holds it up. He says, whose likeness and whose inscription is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. And Jesus, such a, such a brilliant guy, goes, okay, well then give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what belongs to God. That word image or likeness there, whose likeness is on this, is the word image. Whose image is stamped on this coin? And Jesus says, okay, when it comes to this money, uh, Caesar's image is stamped on it, so give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But when it comes to you, when it comes to you as a person, you were made in the image and likeness of God. God's image is stamped on you, so give to God what's God's, which is your life. And so Jesus isn't willing to say, no, overthrow the government, or yes, just capitulate to it. What Jesus says instead is, respect government in the place that it has in the world, but give your heart Give your allegiance, give your hope to God. That was a radical view. It actually says there that the people trying to trap him walked away and they just didn't know what to do with him. They just couldn't ever get him. And that teaching was so revolutionary that it really shaped the early church in a significant way. And that's because the early church was a minority. They were a fringe group. They were not, many people thought of them as kind of a Jewish cult. Right? There was no evangelical voting block. There was no Christian majority. They were just a little side band of no one cared about them. And so that kind of teaching became really crucial in forming the early church. So much so that the Apostle Paul really, in what he's going to write here in Romans 13, reflects a lot of, of what Jesus had to say in that story. Also, the Apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, uh, he goes on to write in 1 Peter 2 almost this exact same kind of stuff that's here in Romans chapter 13. So that teaching shaped the church in a, in a significant way, and hopefully it can even, I think it has, because of our relationship to government today, it has a real opportunity to shape us as well. Now, one quick question before we get into the meat of this is why is this here? So we started chapter 12 a couple months ago, and in chapter 12, uh, the Apostle Paul was saying, in light of all of the mercies that you've seen from God, surrender your entire life to God, offer it to him as a living sacrifice, that's how you worship God. And then Paul began what we spent eight weeks on, which was a discussion on love. Oh, you remembered. Thank you. It wasn't two months wasted. I appreciate that. Two months we spent on this as we just kind of went verse by verse as Paul talked about love. That the Christian life, the mark of Christian maturity, the mark of Christian growth is a growth in love. It starts with growing in our love for one another. It, be, it extends to hospitality and, and love for strangers. It goes on even at the end of chapter 12 to love of enemies. And then 13 hits, and it's government? Now listen, the, the number breaks that we have in our English Bibles, those weren't there in the original text. It was just one continuous thing. And those number breaks sometimes cause us to think that the, the author, in this case Paul, is like having this real transition of thought. Like he sort of finished his thing on love and now he's going to do his greatest hits on other stuff. 
But this is all just part of one continuous stream of thought for him. So much so that actually, look at, look at chapter 13, verse 8. This is where we'll pick up next week. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so next week, we're going to go back to this issue of love. So why is this here? Why is there this kind of parenthesis about government in the middle of this whole section about love? I think one thing that's just kind of interesting, if you go, okay, love God, love each other, love strangers, love enemies, love government. <laughs> maybe, maybe enemies to government is just the most natural train of thought. I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps that's what it was. I think probably a better answer comes from looking at chapter 12, verse 19. In that section that we looked at this past week, Paul was talking about uh, don't repay evil for evil. Don't seek vengeance. Instead, uh, forgive, be kind. And in verse 19, it says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says when something bad happens to you, when someone mistreats you, when someone is cruel to you, don't seek vengeance, but trust that God will take care of it. And that may make us go, well, how is God going to take care of it? Well, one of the ways, and this is what we're going to see in this passage, one of the ways that God takes care of evil in the world and of people who mistreat each other is through government. One of the ways that God's wrath comes is through government punishing evil. So I think that's probably what triggered it in Paul's mind. What we're going to do is we're going to look through this passage, and I want to ask four questions today, and we're going to answer these as best we can from, these, uh, from this passage. The, the first question is, how should Christians relate to civil authorities? How should Christians relate to government? Second question is, why should Christians relate this way? Third question is, what does this look like in the United States of America, which is very different from Rome? And fourth question is, are there any exceptions? How many times when we deviate from the core of how Christians are to relate to the government. So that's what we're going to look at. Paul's going to answer that for us in, these, in this text, all right? So first question, how should Christians relate to civil authorities? The answer comes really clearly in verse 1 and verse 5. Look at verse 1. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, notice he said every person, right? This isn't just specific, like just this little group. It's everybody. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He says a similar thing in verse 5. One must be in subjection to authorities. The way that Christians should relate to civil authorities or to government is right there. The word is be subject. The word means submit. It means really submit voluntarily. You know, there's two kinds of submission. There's the kind when your older brother has you in a headlock, you know, and he kind of makes you submit. He forces you to, and you don't really want to, but you do anyway. And then there's the kind of submission that Christians are to do with one another all the time, which is voluntarily submitting your desires to other people. That's actually a very common thing in the Christian faith. In Ephesians 5, we read a lot about this issue of submission. And what we see there is that the church is to submit to Christ. That we don't say, God, my will be done. We say, God, your will be done. We also see in Ephesians chapter 5, the same author, Paul, that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, he says that that's one of the marks of that we're filled with the Spirit. 
He says when we're filled with the Spirit, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because of our love for Christ, we submit to one another. We go, I don't need to have my, my will, my desire forced on everybody. I'll, I'll do what's best for the whole. I'll submit. In that same uh, passage, it talks about, it says, likewise, wives be subject to your husbands. Wives submit to your husbands. Your husbands are submitting to Christ. You're submitting to your husbands. The scripture also tells us in 1 Peter 5 that younger Christians are to submit to older Christians and to the elders in their church. So this idea of, of submission, of voluntarily laying down your rights and your wants, your perceived needs for the good of other people, that's an entirely Christian approach. And in fact, it's, it's really only a Christian approach because only if, if you realize that your real needs are met in Christ and that Christ loves you and adores you and wants what's best for you, are you eager to go, okay, well, then I trust you. And so Paul says that same attitude of voluntary submission is what we should have toward the civil authorities. So, so this means that submission involves two things. First, submission involves obedience. It involves doing what someone else wants done. And here's the thing. Don't, don't overlook this. It's not submission if you want to do it. Do you get that? If you want to do it, you just want to do it. But when you want something and someone else wants something and you submit, it implies that you didn't want to do it, right? So I think about, we just had our elders here on the stage, and, and uh, we have a, an incredible group of guys, an incredible team, lots of relationships, and all of us uh, come with different ideas at times. I'm thinking about the future a lot, and so a lot of times I'll come with an idea. And when I come with an idea, and they go, man, that's a great idea, we should definitely do that. That's not submission for me. Well, the elders decided I've got to submit to their decision. It's like it was my idea. I wanted to do it. But when I come with an idea and they go, you know, this probably isn't a very good idea. We're not going to do that. And the, the elder decision is we're not going to do it. Well, then it's submission because I go, okay, that wasn't necessarily what I wanted, but I'm going to submit to the plurality of leadership there. So obedience is part of submission. This means when the government says pay your taxes, you do it, right? Paul even says this in verse 6. He says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. That's, that's why you pay taxes. He says, verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And in that, we get that, okay, submitting to government first means obeying them, doing what the government says, not breaking laws, but it also involves our attitude. That's part of submission as well. When we submit to one another, we don't go, oh, I don't want to do it. But we have an attitude that says, okay, I'm going to trust the authority that God has in place. Now, this is really hard. This is the main rub, right? We're, we're, we're kind of willing to grit our teeth and go along with it. I think about, like, when I go into California and they want my fruit. <laughs> have you ever had this experience? What do you want my fruit for? Like, can I just keep my little cuties? You know, they're, they're really easy to peel while I drive. And, like, and, and so I kind of, you know, I sort of grip my teeth and hand over my fruit. And, it's, and, and there, everything in me is like, this is stupid. You guys are dumb. I hate the government. And, and at that point, I'm submitting, but not really. I'm obeying, but the attitude isn't there. And this passage calls 
for both. Did you see that in verse 7? Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So it's not just the action, it's also the heart. And some of you go, well, I don't know if anyone in government, I don't know if they deserve respect. I don't know if they deserve honor. Well, I, I don't know if I believe that. Okay. Well, Paul thinks we should. And here's why. And so this leads us to our second question. Why should Christians relate this way to government? Why should Christians have a submissive behavior and attitude toward government? Well, Paul gives us three reasons in this passage. The first one is this, is that civil authority, governmental authority, is from God. It's from God. That's the first reason why we should submit. This passage, interestingly, uses the word God six times. Just in these seven verses, God is mentioned six times. And every single time, it's referring to his authority in establishing government. Take a look at it. Verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for this, for because this is why, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Paul could not be more emphatic or clear. The authorities are there because God has put them there. Some of you are like, not Obama. <laughs> not him. I'm not even sure he's a citizen. He's not there. He, he's, an, he's an agent of Satan, Obama. Okay. Well, just keep this in mind. When Paul wrote this, you know who the emperor in Rome was? Nero. I'll, I'll take Obama any day over Nero. Okay? Now, at the point this was written, Nero wasn't as bad as he was going to be in his persecution of Christians. Years to come after this, Nero would actually impale Christians on poles and light them on fire to use as torches for his elegant dinner parties in the gardens. I'll take Obama. All right, so, so he, now he wasn't that bad then. He wasn't doing that then at the time Paul wrote this, but he wasn't a good guy. And remember, Christians were this fringe little thing. You couldn't find a Christian in government. You couldn't find a Christian in leadership. So this is a staggering thing that Paul is saying the pagan authorities are servants of God. They're ministers of God. They've been put there by God. It's no small thing. The whole Bible really teaches this. Proverbs 21 says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Get that? 
king's heart's in, just in God's hand. He's like, oh, I'm going to do this. Right? And we see that. If you read the story of the Exodus, you see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God has that ability to do it. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is in a foreign land. He's in Babylon among a pagan government. He has a position of influence. And he's asked to interpret a dream. And as he does this, here's what he says. It says in Daniel 2, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. We should submit to government because civil authority is from God. Now listen, here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible confronts everybody. Because it confronts those of us who are not in positions of authority and says, hey, you need to have more respect and more submission than you're inclined to have toward the government because God put them there. But it also confronts those who are in positions of authority. And here's what it says to them. God put you there. You're not there because you're so great. God could take it away at any moment. God is the ultimate authority, not you. Now, this was confrontational, especially the Roman Empire, where these Roman emperors, when they died, were were considered divine. They considered themselves to have all authority in heaven and on earth, which is why when the Scripture emphasizes that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, it's saying that into a Roman situation, saying, no, Jesus has ultimate authority. And so this confronts them to say, hey, hey, are you an officer? Do you work in a prison? Are you a governor? Are you a congressman? Are you a president? Hey, hey, hey. You're only there because God put you there. And he could take you away at any moment. So you better honor him. I love how the Bible confronts both of those things. But we submit to government because it's been put there by God. Second reason is more practical uh, why we submit to government is to avoid God's wrath. We saw that throughout this passage. There's a lot of judgment that comes if we don't. It says in verse uh, 2, at the end of verse 2, or just we'll read the whole thing. Verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. You know what he's saying? You disobey the government, you disobey the authority, you break the law. You're going to incur judgment. The government's there to punish you for it. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This is one of the just practical reasons why, like all in favor of not going to prison. Right? Obey the laws. Obey the government. Submit. The government has this authority according to God. According to God, the government has the authority to punish evil, to be a terror for bad conduct. The government has that authority. We don't individually have that authority. We actually looked at this last week. At the end of Romans 12, we saw how we're to act individually and as a church. We are to Love our neighbors ourselves, we're to forgive, we're to pray for our enemies, we're to turn the other cheek. But the government has the ability legitimately to bear the sword. Right? This is, this is why, for the government, this is why I don't think the Bible affirms pacifism. The idea that the government should never, government should never attack each other. 
Now, there's good reasons and bad reasons. If it's to attack and to punish what's evil, then it's a just thing. If it's just advancing more territory and all that kind of stuff, it's not. But listen, it's, it's why we're not going to care package ISIS into anything good. Let's just drop, you know, medical supplies on them and they'll turn. No. There's a need to bomb people when they're committed to evil in the world. That's okay. Now, if we were to interact with them individually, it's a different story, right? I don't have, I don't personally have the ability to bomb anyone, but the government does. Government has that prerogative to inflict wrath. Now, sadly, the government doesn't always do that right. And this raises all kinds of interesting questions about, well, what about governments that are not just and that don't seem to be doing the right thing and that seem to be using force uh, not to, to punish evil but to advance evil? It raises really interesting questions. For us, we're called to submit because civil authority is from God. To, to, uh, we want to avoid God's wrath. And then the last reason, just briefly here, is in verse 5. It says, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. As followers of God, we know that God's put the authority there. We do this not just practically to avoid the wrath, but because we want to honor God. We want to honor his authority. So Christians should submit. We should do it because God's put people in authority. We want to avoid God's wrath, and we have consciences that respect God's authority. But it raises this third question. What does this look like in the United States? Paul is writing to this situation in Rome where the emperor is thought of as ultimate. And we're in the United States. We don't have an emperor that's ultimate. For us, it's about we the people. We the people are ultimate. It's a different situation. It's a different scenario. How do we do do that? One of the things we need to see just through this passage is that neither a divine emperor or we the people are ultimate. God is. And there's actually a lot of really interesting uh, discussion among theologians and historians about uh, even the American Revolution and to what degree the American Revolution was and wasn't application of Romans 13. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting things. Uh, Many people that actually stayed loyal to to Britain did so because of Romans 13. They thought, I just don't know if we should be subject. Other people, or I just think we should be subject to the king. Other people said, well, no, this, this is unjust. It's wrong. We should overthrow it. There's a lot of discussion about that, even historically. But it raises interesting questions for us. A couple weeks ago, I was in uh, Philadelphia uh, on my way to something else and was there for a couple hours and got to see Independence Hall where they signed the Declaration of Independence and the, wrote the Constitution and saw the Liberty Bell and it's amazing how small those rooms are and just all the history that's there. And uh, we were talking a lot then about the Declaration of Independence. Here's what the Declaration of Independence says. Just compare it to what we've been reading in Romans 13. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter, to abolish it, and to institute new government. Do you notice in the Declaration where it says the government's authority comes from? In Romans 13, it said it came from God. 
The Declaration of Independence says it came from men. Interesting. Now you can go, well, but God gave it to men who gives it to the government. Okay. But I think that even right there just reveals how challenging it is to see this kind of passage through an American lens. Because in the American tradition, we are supreme. We the people. It's about us. It's very hard then to be subject, right? We're a nation of rebels. That was the, our history. It's, it's very difficult. And, and the other thing that makes it difficult is just the form of our government makes it very interesting because in our governmental system, we both are the authority and aren't the authority, right? We are the authority. We, the people, we have this power. We have the ability to vote. We have a representative de- democracy. We have this authority. You're expected to speak up. You're expected to use it. A part of what's protected in the First Amendment is the idea that you are going to speak out against bad government. It's expected as being a good citizen. So you are the government, but you also aren't the government, right? You're not there on Capitol Hill. You're not making those decisions for the most part. Some of you are in that place. You're in law enforcement or in a prison, or you're in places where you, uh, you work in local government. I mean, it's different for you. But for the majority of us, uh, we both are and aren't really the government. So what are we, what's our responsibility in that? I think there's two responsibilities we have. The first one is we are responsible to participate in the political process. We're responsible to participate in government. If government is from God and it's given by God and in the United States of America it's been given to us as the people, then we are bad stewards if we do nothing with that authority that God has given us. If we don't participate if we don't vote, if we don't stay informed, we're squandering the authority that God has given to us. So that's one role. We've got to participate. And this becomes increasingly important as as the people of God. Because as the people of God, the movement, the trajectory of our government is to persecute Christians. To persecute not just Christians, but people with any kind of religious conviction. Roman Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, any kind of religious conviction, is to persecute that. And so it's especially imperative that we use our voices to speak out against that, because that's wrong. That's unjust. We should do that. I I think it's really interesting what Russell Moore says. He is a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention related to freedom of speech and ethics, and here's what he says about this. He says, in a democratic republic, by stepping away from the table... You are not just saying, I'm willing to be persecuted. You're saying, I'm willing to be persecutor. Right? Some Christians are going, you know what? There's just too much of an emphasis on politics in the church. And I think that might be true. But they'll say, I'm just going to step away from the whole thing. I'm just not going to be involved in any of it. You know, if they persecute us, hey, the early church was persecuted. We get persecuted. Yeah, but if you do that, what Moore is saying there is you're part of the persecution. You're doing the persecution by not saying anything, by being silent. So we've got to participate. We have a really cool opportunity for you to participate, actually, as Redemption Church. This is a a special thing for us. And that's this uh, Redemption Civic Forums with the candidates for Arizona governor. This is a really cool opportunity that we have. Uh, It's going to be hosted at Redemption uh, Gilbert. Um, On October 14th, we'll have Fred Duvall, who's the Democratic nominee uh, for governor. And October 28th will be Doug Ducey, the Republican 
uh, nominee for governor. And this is a really cool thing where this is going to be hosted at the church. One of our pastors will interview them and ask questions and uh, would love for you to come and to be, to be part of that. It's been especially interesting over these last months because the Duval campaign has specifically reached out to leaders at Redemption and said, will you help us understand evangelicals better? And, and that relationship has begun some really special relationships where we've been able to say, here's what we believe, we're not going to back down on that, but we're going to continue to love one another. I had opportunities to pray for him, and it's just been really sweet, even to the point where he's willing, get this, a Democratic candidate's willing to go to what he knows is probably mostly a conservative environment and be questioned. That takes a remarkable level of humility, I think. And I'd love for you to just encourage that by, by being part of it and maybe listen to what he has to say. So anyway, so that's coming. Those are the kinds of things you can uh, participate in. And that is our responsibility. We have a responsibility to participate. But secondly, we have a responsibility to respect those who are elected. To respect them. Did you see that in this passage? Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. We participate. We make our vote. We do it. We leave it in the hand of God. And then we respect who's there. We respect that office. As it says in 1 Timothy 2, we pray for those people. That should be part of how a Christian submits to government in the United States. Okay, last question. Are there any exceptions to this? Christians are called to submit to government. We're to obey government with our actions and our attitudes. Are there any exceptions? Uh, Doug Moo is a commentator. He's written the uh, probably the best commentary on Romans. We've been using it throughout this series. And he, he had a great, uh, great little line in his commentary on this section. Here's what he said. He said, It is only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of the interpretation of Romans 13, 1-7 is the history of attempts to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning. <laughs> he says, here's the deal. It is so straightforward. Submit to government. Yeah, but... Well, what about, and so he just says all these commentaries, all these interpretations are just all these things trying to wiggle out from that. But we read it six times. God's authority, God's servant, God's minister, God's wrath. It's there. You can't avoid that. And yet, because government's authority is not ultimate, because God's authority trumps government's authority, there are instances when Christians should disobey government. There are. Now, I hope what you've felt as we've been working this through is really the weight of going, there aren't a lot of moments when that happens. And most of the time, our attitude should be that of respect and of submission to the government. But there are moments because government's power isn't absolute. This principle is taught in a number of places in the Scripture. One that's very clear is in Acts chapter 5, where the apostles have been teaching about Jesus, and these local authorities say, hey, stop it. You're trying to get us killed. There's going to be a revolt. Quit talking about Jesus. And they say, we can't. We're not going to stop talking about Jesus. We, we must obey God rather than men. And, and that gives us really a great principle for when it's okay to disobey the government, when it's okay to not do what the government tells you to do. And, and, and the, the time that that's okay is when the government is calling you to do something that's sin. That's when it's okay. If the government tells you to do something that you don't like, 
you submit. If the government tells you to sin, you disobey. If the government were to make a law saying you can have no more than two children, and if you get pregnant after that, you need to have an abortion, you disobey that. If the government were to come to me or to us as a church and say, you must officiate same-sex weddings, we will disobey that. You could think of other examples. If the government said, you may not share your faith, disobey that. There's a history of, of people, the people of God, disobeying when it came to God's authority trumping government's authority. One example is in the book of Exodus. At the beginning of Exodus, uh, the Pharaoh there has instructed the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male babies that are born. And they refuse to do that. They don't do that. And in fact, that Moses ends up put in a basket and rescued because of those efforts and is able to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt because they disobeyed. There's a place in Daniel, a number of places in Daniel, where Daniel or his three friends uh, refuse to obey the government because it's in conflict with their obedience to God. One is where the king says, you cannot pray to anyone except to me. And Daniel says, no. God tells me to pray to him, to love him alone, and I'm going to do that. And so Daniel openly and uh, at great risk to himself disobeys government in order to honor God. Esther that does the same thing. She's a queen and, and, and is not supposed to go in before the king in a particular moment or she could be killed. And she breaks that because she is, is seeking to save uh, so many Jewish people who are about to be slaughtered. God's agenda trumps government's agenda. But that's the only time. If it's just something we don't like, if it's just something we don't prefer, we submit. And so I think the thrust of this passage tells us that we should be more submissive to authorities than we might think. It's really interesting to use Daniel as a case study, actually, because there's all these places in the book of Daniel where Daniel is standing up and saying, no, I I won't uh, submit to that part of the government. But what most people don't notice is how much Daniel is willing to submit to. If you read the first part of Daniel, one of the things you see is that as he's a young man being brought into Babylon where they intend to brainwash these young leaders and use them for their pagan purposes, one of the things Daniel is willing to do is to immerse himself in Babylonian pagan literature. Not just read it, but become so proficient at it that he's at the top of the class when they test him. Daniel's willing to have his name changed was a direct assault on his Jewish identity. Daniel, it, it's not explicitly said, but it seems like Daniel was willing to submit to becoming a eunuch, which would have made him unclean in the temple of God, but he was willing to do that. And yet when it came to um, breaking certain food laws, he said, no, I won't do that. So there's some wisdom there and going, well, when is this a time that I stand up and when is it a time that I go, you know what, okay, I'm going I'm to read the astrology book. But, but Christians, as, as humble, servant-oriented, submissive, loving people, should be very respectful of government. One of my favorite pastors is John Piper, And he had a number of sermons on Romans 13 that were helpful to read. And in one of them, here's what he wrote. He said, Paul writes in such absolutes 
because he is more concerned with our humility and self-denial and trust in Christ than he is about our civil liberties. In other words, Paul risked being understood on the side of submission because he saw pride as a greater danger to Christians than government injustice. Think about that for a second. Pride is a greater danger than government injustice. Why? Because pride's in your heart, and pride leads you to hell. If you're all about my rights and what I want, beware. Piper continues, I cannot imagine Paul writing this way if Paul thought that the ultimate thing was being treated fairly by the government. But I can imagine him writing this way if faith and humility and self-denial and readiness to suffer for Christ is the main thing. That's exactly right. Those things are the main thing. Why? Because as much as we're going to respect and honor and submit to government, our king is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. Our allegiance is the kingdom of Jesus. Right? Jesus came and he preached that the kingdom of God had come. And he, he said, listen, whatever image is on you belongs to God. Well, whose image? It's God's. God's image is on us, so it belongs to him. And Jesus died and rose again to inaugurate a kingdom. And at this point in time, it had not yet become and has not yet become a political kingdom. But someday it will. And for now, we are having a foretaste of the kingdom of God, where Jesus is our king, where he is the one we're loyal to. We are resident aliens in this world. We are citizens of heaven, ambassadors of earth. Our hope is in him. Because that's true, we're not getting so wrapped up in the politics and in the government. We participate. We want to steward God's authority well. But we see ourselves as Christians before members of any political party. Let me ask you this. Are you being discipled more by Jesus or by Rush Limbaugh? Here's one of the great ways to know. When you think about your political affiliations, which part of your political party's platform do you disagree with because of your Christian faith? If the answer is nothing, then I, then I wonder if perhaps your loyalty has suddenly shifted to the party instead of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for stamping us with your image. Thank you that we belong to Jesus. Thank you that the world belongs to him. God, we want to be good stewards of the responsibility you've entrusted to us. We want to be involved in the political process in ways that are appropriate, in ways that are helpful, in ways that help us love our fellow man and woman and citizens. God, we want to do that. But God, we want our loyalty to be with you. God, give us wisdom in these coming days about which moments it's right to disobey government because it conflicts with your word. And give us courage to do that when that comes. And God, in every other instance, give us humility. Give us respect. Give us love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen.